Oh, hey, hello. Welcome to Hollywood Party. I'm so glad you could make it. Today, we're getting to know our guest on their birthday. Woo -woo. So grab a piece of cake and join the party. If you aren't listening to this on July 10th, then we will say a very happy unbirthday to Hattie McDaniel. If you are, she was born on this day in 1893 in Wichita, Kansas. A lot of people only know Hattie from her roles on screen, mainly that of Mammy and Gone with the Wind. But she was 46 when she played that role, and she had two, kind of even three different careers before that, so let's get to know her. By the time Hattie came into the world, her mother Susan had given birth to 13 kids. But the year Hattie was born, only seven were living. So full disclosure, I'm going to try to interject as many fun little giggles as I can. But in the words of Marty McFly, this is heavy. Don't let that scare you, Hattie still had a really interesting life. Both of her parents were formerly enslaved. Seven years before Hattie was born, her father Henry had filed for a veteran's disability pension. To do that, he had to hire a white lawyer and was rejected because the government claimed there was no record to show he was injured during the Civil War. Henry appealed this, and like every dad, he came home and complained to all of his kids, and they all had to hear the story of how he was injured every single time he was rejected. Henry, his older sister, and younger brother were born into slavery in Spotsylvania, Virginia. They had no memories of their parents and only have a rough idea of their birthdays because of when they were made to work. Henry was forced to work at age five. To be enslaved meant you were denied all rights, could not marry, could not own property, could not vote, were not allowed to learn to read or write, and had zero protection under the law. Henry and his brother were sold to John McDaniel, the last name, who lived in Tennessee. In 1863, the Union Army came through and pulled all the slaves into a contraband camp. Henry joined the Union Army, where he learned to read and write a little bit. At the Battle of Overton Hill, a shell exploded next to Henry's head. Part of his jaw was shattered, and he received no medical attention and had to keep marching with his unit. Because of snow and icy weather, Henry had frostbite from his ankles down. When the war was over, he was deaf in his right ear, had a lame walk, chronic headaches, and his mouth was a mess. It was infected and bone shards would just occasionally fall off. Even with all these major medical issues, Henry had to get a job, and all he knew was to be a laborer, so he went into agricultural labor. In 1868, he and two others were attacked by the KKK. As I said, Henry's disability claim kept getting denied, which was extremely common with black officers. Since there were no records of his injuries, the government made Henry get written accounts from witnesses. And the witnesses were all former slaves who probably didn't know how to read or write too well, so it was just not great. It took Henry 18 years of constant refiling to get six 
$1,500 a month. In 1908, he was over 70 years old and filed for the old age pension. And yet again, that took him six years of appeals to get $17 a month. We have never treated our veterans well. Like, this is disgusting. As a toddler, Hattie would go with her mom while she took care of white homes. She vividly remembered a woman bringing her daughter into the kitchen and telling her, not that you'll ever need to know how to cook, you should still learn a little. Hattie knew she did not have that option. When the family moved to Denver, Hattie attended an integrated school and sang in the church choir. Her brother Otis went into entertainment and she loved performing as well. At eight years old, she sang at a carnival and earned $5. Although entertaining was a form of self-expression for her at the time, she saw it as a way to lift her family out of poverty and the restrictions put upon them by a white society. She quit school her sophomore year and won a spot in a famous minstrel show. There are two kinds of minstrel shows. White, who performed with blackface and made the stereotypically racist characters, like Jim Crow, the country bumpkin, the fast-talking dandy called Zip Coon, the seductive Mulata, and the loyal and silly Mammy. The black form of minstrelsy spoofed the white version. Some of the black troops became famous in the white community, who had no idea the entertainers were making fun of them. Obviously, show business then and now was mostly men. But in 1914, Hattie organized an all-female minstrel show. She wrote the entire script and two songs. She played a mammy, but rejected the traditional character by making her talk back, flirt, and basically not be ignored none of which was allowed in white society. Like most comedians, Hattie took something that was extremely painful and turned it into laughter. Black entertainers of the time thought of themselves as race men and women. They encountered more white people in one week than most black people would in a year, so they felt very responsible. Her family was deeply religious, but her dad said this about her choice to go into entertainment. There is so much trouble in the world. I hope you will pray that through you, the Lord will make people happy. During her beginning years, Hattie fell in love with a man named Howard Hickman. She was 17 when they married and he was 22. In so many ways, Hattie was ahead of her time, but in 1911, it was extremely rare for a woman to hyphenate her last name, which is exactly what she did. Her minstrel group, the McDaniel Sisters Company, was extremely popular. They drew crowds of 500 people or more to watch them. Because of the success, Hattie planned a character recital to showcase her talents. She wrote everything herself and even rented a hall. But weeks before the event, her husband got pneumonia. He ended up dying the day before the show. She was only 21. Unfortunately, this was the best marriage she was to have. She went into mourning for one year, returning to domestic work to support herself. When she came out of mourning, she went back to her passion and did a show called Spirella Johnson. Spirella was a type of a corset. 2,000 people came to see her. She also read poetry, Shakespeare, and served as a church choir director. Her solos apparently brought sinners to repent. That is pretty impressive. The beginning of the 1920s did bring the Harlem Renaissance, but there were also race riots because the KKK hired an advertising team to get them more members. How did that meeting go? All I can see is Don Draper trying to work that out. Actually, this seems more like a job for Pete Campbell. What a tool. Hattie's parents died two years apart. Susan in 1920 and Henry suffering from kidney failure, all of his war wounds and constant pain died at probably 80 years old and penniless. It took Hattie's sister six months after his death to get any kind of compensation from the Veterans Association to help pay for his burial. Hattie remarried in 1921 to a guy named Nim Langford. They were off 
and on for years, it wasn't great from the start. She did start singing the blues in her cousin's band. They practiced seven to eight hours a day and were so good that they got hired by the all-white Pantages vaudeville circuit. They toured for five months, three shows a day, six nights a week. Hattie interjected banter and jokes in between her songs. In 1925, Variety said she was buxom, noisy, and funny. Her humor was definitely based on her physical appearance, which has been passed down from Moms Mabley to Monique to Leslie Jones. She was billed as the sepia Sophie Tucker. During this time, she was also the first black woman to perform on the radio with a full orchestra. She moved to Chicago, and although she was a big deal in Denver, she was now a little fish in a big pond and had to start all over again. She said, these years were filled with ups and downs, and they seemed to be mostly downs. She did start recording records and was known as a blues singer, comedian, recording artist, and songwriter. Blues allowed her to give an outlet to her opinions and ideas that she would normally not be allowed to express publicly. It was kind of a form of protest. She would complain about her shitty marriage, criticize sexism and racism. The big themes with her were really independence and assertiveness. I've linked a few of her songs on my blog for your listening pleasure. The singing went so well that she was signed as the lead singer of Richard M. Jones and his Knights of Syncopation. That is a kick-ass name, by the way. Becoming a blues singer did reinforce stereotypes that black women were hypersexualized. She can't win. You're that or you're an asexual mammy. She also found out that her turd of a husband moved to Harlem with his new wife and baby, even though he was still married to Hattie. Doesn't matter, she got cast in the chorus of the Chicago production of Showboat. Ziegfeld took it on tour, and one thing about that guy is, all of his productions looked amazing because he spent a shit ton on them. Therefore, he was always low on cash. So when the tour got to Detroit, he laid a bunch of people off, including Hattie. Her brother Sam moved to Los Angeles in 1931, so she and a car full of friends moved to Hollywood. She had 20 bucks in her pocket. So at 38 years old, she was yet again the small fish and had to start totally over with her career. Her brother Sam had his own band, but he also had a ton of small roles in film. Hattie was almost forced into film because during the Great Depression, nobody really wanted to hear blues songs about a hard knock life. Everyone's life was awful at that point. The first three years she was in Hollywood, she was an extra in a hundred movies. Hattie did manage to get a talent agent, Charles Butler. He was one of the most powerful black men in Hollywood. He was in charge of getting 14 different studios, actors to fill whatever little roles they needed. Most of the roles were maids, butlers, waiters, and mammies. They were used as comic relief, but were not allowed to use proper diction, therefore reinforcing the stereotype that all black people spoke in slave speak. Charles Muse, a black actor turned newspaper columnist, explained it like this. There are two audiences in America. The white audience with a definite desire for buffoonery and song, and the Negro audience with a desire to see the real elements of Negro life portrayed. In addition to extra work, Hattie was on a radio show called The Optimistic Donuts. She was supposed to play a maid who forgets her place. And since it's the radio, she wasn't going to show up in maid's clothes, so she came in an evening dress. Well, everybody else showed up in their servant clothes, so they called her High Hat Hattie. She loved it because it showed she was rejecting poverty. She was such a big hit that they gave her her own show, Hi-Hat Hattie and Her Boys, and she wrote all of her own material. In 1932, she gets her first speaking job in The Impatient Maiden. She plays a woman hospitalized after she beat the hell out of her husband. Her big break was in Blonde Venus. Yes, she had to play a maid who was loyal to her white lady, but she doesn't know or care to know her place. 
If her character were a real maid, she would have totally been fired for sure. What she was basically doing was mixing her blues singer persona with her minstrel parody to create the Hattie McDaniel of the screen that we all know. This was such a success that Esquire magazine ranked her alongside Mae West and Marie Dressler. Her only real competition was Louise Beavers, who was her friend in real life, but their personalities on screen were so different. Louise was very soft and gentle, and Hattie was not. Because of that, she kind of got herself locked into comedic roles. The first time she got to sing on screen was with Will Rogers. He apparently thought she was so good that he wanted her part in the movie Judge Priest extended and requested to do a song with her. Her friend Louise got the main role in Imitation of Life for the reason I already explained. She was more soft. That was the first dramatic role for a black actor on screen, but you can't make everyone happy, right? The NAACP's Crisis magazine said, some may praise the picture on the grounds that it will create sympathy for Negroes. As for me, I say who the mm, wants their condescending sympathy. I'll take respect and equality or nothing. That movie was a huge success, and many in the industry thought things would certainly change. There were no dressing rooms or hairdressers or wardrobe girls for black actors. Those conditions did improve once the actors were allowed to join SAG, but the roles did not. Hattie's biggest role up to that point was in The Little Colonel, a Shirley Temple movie with Bill Bojangles Robinson. She played a mammy. Over at Universal, they were getting ready to do Showboat, and the role of Queenie was going to go to Tess Gardella, a white lady who played the role on stage in blackface. Thankfully, the Breen office stepped in and said, whoa dudes, you cannot do that. We're fine with a blackface part, that's great. But Queenie's married to Joe, and he's played by an actual black man, and we can't have interracial marriage in any way on the screen. Haze code, sorry. So Universal says, okay, we'll get Hattie McDaniel to do the part, but we can still use the N-word, right? No, you cannot. Hattie McDaniel did such a great job in that part that Luella Parsons said she was her favorite new actress. From 1936 to 1937, Hattie was in 11 major films. She's so successful that studios promote her films in black neighborhoods. She hires a publicist and purchases her first home. She was very proud to get an African-American woman to landscape both of her yards. Hattie did splurge on a white baby grand piano, and she bought a green Packard. She was extremely generous with her time and money. She donated musical instruments to schools and made sure underprivileged kids had plenty of toys, especially at Christmas. And after a 10 year separation, she finally divorced her husband. I forgot she was even still married. She said, I don't wanna be bothered with him anymore. On screen, she was forced to wear aprons and cotton dresses. Off screen, she gave a real sense of refinement and elegance. She loved orchids and ermine. Everything was always super tailored and topped with a cute hat. In addition to being religious, she was a big believer in positive thinking. Every morning she would go outside, throw her arms open and shout, hello there, good morning. I wonder what her neighbors thought. The big problem was that Hattie gained success by helping reinforce stereotypes that she spoofed in her youth. True, she did speak up and she played the traditional roles in different ways, but black critics said that black actors who took these roles were selfish because they were putting their careers ahead of the big issue. Hattie and other actors felt that their presence in Hollywood was a big step forward. She had to restart her career so many times over the past 30 years, so she was justifiably proud and protective of it. It was difficult for her to move between Hollywood's demands and the black struggle. 
She ran a large Christmas greeting in the California Eagle, a black newspaper. She included a poem that she wrote. I have learned something worth far more than victory brings to men. Battered and beaten, bruised and sore, I can still come back again. Trained upon pain and punishment, I've groped my way through the night, but the flag still flies from my tent and I've only begun to fight. Clearly, self-expression was taking a back seat to making a living. Hattie famously said, I can be a maid for $7 a week or I can play a maid for $700 a week. She vividly remembered poverty and was not trying to do that again. The studios used the excuse that Southerners were such loyal moviegoers that they had to bend to their whims. Uh, the South only made up 8% of profit for the studios. That was just an excuse not to do black films. So Gone with the Wind gets published. We know Selznick buys the rights and Bing Crosby, who was friends with Hattie, suggested her for the role of Mammy. She never thought she had a chance because all she did was comedies. George Cukor didn't think she had the right face. The way Margaret Mitchell described Mammy wasn't pretty, so that's a compliment, I guess. Once Hattie did a screen test with Vivian Lee, the chemistry was there, and she got signed at $450 a week for 15 weeks. But Selznick knew it's gonna go longer, so she's gonna make more money than that. The NAACP suggested Selznick hire a black consultant. He did not hire one because they would just get in the way of the already jacked up production. Truly, the entire black community was worried that Gone with the Wind would be worse for them than A Birth of a Nation was. He he did agree to change any black villain to a white one, take out all mentions of the KKK and lynchings. He didn't understand why he couldn't use the N-word. Take a few more benzos, David, jeez. So he sent an editor to meet with African-American leaders about the word, and the editor reported back, they abhor and resent it as they resent no other word. Days before that meeting, Hattie refused to film scenes where she had to use that term, but she never claimed to be responsible for any changes to the script in that regard. While doing press for the upcoming film, Hattie definitely did her part to court the white press. She only spoke of her domestic career, no talk of her extensive career as a blues singer. Of course, no mention that her father was a freed slave that fought against the South. One article cooked up by the studio press machine said Hattie's own grandma was a mammy on a plantation and quote, Hattie's grandmother will be proud to see her granddaughter become the servant of quality folks on the motion picture screen. Remember how Henry didn't even know his parents because he was a baby when he was sold? Yeah, what a crock of shit. Margaret Mitchell had a friend on the set to help tutor actors to speak in a black Georgian dialect. The woman reported back, Hattie says yes'em and no'em to me in a way that makes me mighty homesick for my Mary Brown back in Macon. Come on, lady. Although the black actors on the set would watch each other's scenes and applaud one another at the end, Hattie thought that Butterfly McQueen complained too much, and in her experience, any actor that spoke up lost their career. Butterfly thought Hattie was a sellout. One of the only positive things about Selznick changing the script on a daily basis was that Hattie was able to improvise a lot more. In the editing room, Selznick realized Hattie gave the best performance of the film. I know, Vivian Lee was amazing, yes she was, but Hattie's mammy never watches her mouth, is very open about the fact that watching Scarlet is an eternal ass ache because she and everyone surrounding her are morons. In her big scene, Hattie doesn't go into hysterics like the stereotypical mammy might. She pretty much breaks these people down psychologically as she walks up the stairs to Bonnie's room. She's the smartest person in the whole damn movie. When asked how she got the tears to flow in her final scene, Hattie said, those were honest to goodness tears. No skinned onion comes near me, nor any other inducer. If tears are slow to come, I get to thinking of the meals I missed in my early struggles, and believe you me, they come a gushing. It probably comes as no shock to say that the black actors were not allowed to go to the gala premiere in Atlanta, and Selznick was livid. 
He said, probably in a memo, in these increasingly liberal days, thank goodness, I hate to be personally on the spot for seeming ungrateful for what I honestly feel is one of the great supporting performances of all time, which is that of Mammy. Everyone who has ever seen the picture is unanimous in agreement that one of her scenes, which is very close to the end of the picture, is easily the high emotional point of the film. She said nothing of the snub, but when a newspaper article said that an Oscar for Hattie would mean that discrimination and prejudice would be wiped away, she walked her ass into Selznick's office and tossed the paper on his desk. He was stoked, and he nominated Hattie for a spot on the ballot. Hattie was the first black actor to ever be nominated for an Oscar. She was also the first black actor to ever attend the Oscars, and hell to the yes, she was the first black actor to win an Oscar. The studio had written a speech for her, but she got so caught up in the moment that she forgot it on her table. While at the podium collecting her award, she mentioned that she hopes to be, quote, a credit to my race and the motion picture industry. She is explaining her problem right there. She saw her win as a step for her race, not a personal achievement. I think we should celebrate with her as well and grab another slice of cake. I'll be right back. And here comes the Oscar curse. She had to go back to playing comedic maids. One black critic hit the nail on the head by saying, I don't think it will be easy for me to laugh at Hattie's comedy in the future, for I'll never be able to overlook the tragic fact that a very great artist is being wasted. In the spring of 1940, Selznick agreed to let Hattie do personal appearances, like little acts before the showing of Gone with the Wind at theaters all over America. She wrote the act, which included a song about Mammy being sick of raising kids, and it was full of energy and sexuality. Kind of like Mammy Burlesque. I bet that someone's kink too. I'm not gonna Google it because I know I'm gonna find something. The tour was three months and by the end of it, she was exhausted. She signed a contract with Selznick International and nine months later, they still had no script for her. They did, however, want recipes for her to give to women's magazines. She told them, I don't use recipes. Then she went off and received an honor given to her by Eleanor Roosevelt. Boom. Selznick did end up selling her contract to Warners, and if stars like Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis hated it over there, Hattie did not have a chance. The only serious role she had was one scene in This Our Life, and the movie was shelved because of Pearl Harbor. She was elected to head the Negro Division of the Hollywood Victory Committee and was extremely involved with USO shows, bond rallies. She visited injured soldiers at the veterans' hospitals. She had bought a big house in the West Adams District of Los Angeles, and she opened it to black soldiers who didn't have a place to stay when they were on layover because there were not enough black hotels in Los Angeles at that time. She even turned her basement into an air raid shelter. Speaking of her house, it is still there, it is absolutely gorgeous, and now it's worth like $1.4 million. So when the homes in her neighborhood were built, the new homeowners had to sign a racially restrictive covenant promising to never sell the house to an African-American. Some of the people in the area moved to Beverly Hills in later decades or were forced to sell their homes because Great Depression. So more and more wealthy black Angelinos moved into the neighborhood and rechristened it Sugar Hill for a neighborhood in Harlem. In 1945, eight white D-bags sued to have the black neighbors evicted, stating that if restrictive covenants were not enforced, their property would would lose value and racial clashes would inevitably ensue. FYI, there were 57 black families in the neighborhood now versus the eight that are being pissy. Hattie rounded up a group of 30 people and got a lawyer. Hattie's lawyer goes in on the first day and says restrictive covenants violate the 14th amendment, so eat it. Judge Thurman Clark does not sound like the name of a guy who's going to be on Hattie's side, but 
He immediately ruled, stating, quote, It is time that members of the Negro race are recorded without reservations and evasions. The full rights guaranteed them under the 14th Amendment of the Federal Constitution. Judges have been avoiding the real issue too long. Certainly, there was no discrimination against the Negro race when it came to calling upon its members to die on the battlefields in defense of this country in the war just ended. Damn, suck it, eight neighbors! So at this house, Hattie was a legendary hostess. She held salons where black actors, musicians, and artists would exchange ideas, relax, or just practice their craft. In addition to that, she held a yearly Hollywood party. Of course, black actors were in attendance, but she worried that white directors and actors might not show up. She did not have to worry. She was friends with Clark Gable and he never missed one of her parties. The NAACP started having meetings with studio heads about ending stereotyping and showing more of a reality. Walter White, not the dude from Breaking Bad, spoke for the NAACP and said that Lena Horne was the perfect example of the new cinematic Negro. Great, thought Hattie. Someone thin, young, light-skinned, like I need more competition. If that's what the NAACP was pushing, she was afraid the studios would completely cut out dark-skinned, working-class comedic roles. Hattie said, I naturally resent being completely ignored at the convention after I have struggled for 11 years to open up opportunities for our group in the industry. She received yet another knock. When This Our Life was released, the South wanted to cut her dramatic scene and any mention of racism in the film. The Atlanta censorship board said, racism is still the South's problem. We know how to handle it. Not so much, my dudes. Then, Hattie was called to be the MC at the first annual Motion Picture Awards Assembly. I don't even, there's so many awards, how do you keep up? She accidentally slipped and called Lena Horne the N-word on stage. They were actually friends, like this was a legit oops. She felt awful about it. She was really pissed when the California Eagle slammed her for it. She was frustrated with her career, and then her reputation in the black community was slipping. With Sidney Poitier and Dorothy Dandridge coming up in the ranks, black Hollywood old-timers were a reminder of stereotypes. Speaking of which, Hattie signed on to do Song of the South for Walt Disney. If you want to listen to someone talk for six hours about a 94-minute movie, there is another old Hollywood podcast out there all about it, so knock yourself out. All you really need to know is that this movie reinforced the idea that the South was better before the Civil War, slaves liked it on the plantation, and Disney animated the stereotypical, super offensive characters instead of making them live action. Of course, Hattie was slammed by the black press by taking another mammy role. Her response was so good. What do you want me to do? Play a glamour girl and sit on Clark Gable's knee? When you ask me not to play these parts, what have you got in return? In between Gone with the Wind and the late 40s, Hattie gets married twice. Both of these guys stink and they're not really worth elaborating on. They're not abusive. They just either didn't like a woman making more money than them or were lazy or both. In 1947, she took over the Beulah radio show at CBS. The part of the black maid was originally played by a white lady, but she died and then Hattie came and took over. She was the first black person to headline her own radio show. Procter and Gamble loved her so much that they increased the shows to five days a week and paid her to do ads for their products. She refused to speak in a dialect and turned Beulah into someone who knew what she wanted. The Kansas City Call newspaper printed a list of things that must go and Hattie McDaniel was on the list because she was playing a maid again. She said, how can one in your profession not know that the millions of Negroes in this country, the majority of them are employed in domestic roles? Why do we as a race deny our heritage? Surely you don't think that the role I portray is obsolete. 
As her health declined, Hattie said she played everything but the harp. She put her house up for sale and bought an eight-room bungalow near the Wilshire Country Club. The KKK left a flaming cross on her lawn. Lovely. ABC put the Beulah show on TV, but they put Ethel Waters in as the lead. Butterfly McQueen said Ethel Waters was pure, plain hell. So they revamped it with Hattie in February of 1951. It was going great, except in August, she found out that she had advanced heart disease, was diabetic, and then suffered a stroke. The following January, she found out that she had breast cancer for the past two years, and by the time they caught it, obviously it was inoperable. She had to sell her house to cover medical expenses and moved into the motion picture home. She passed away on October 26th, 1952. She wanted to be buried in Hollywood Forever Cemetery, but they were racist back then and didn't allow black people. So she is now at Rosedale Cemetery in LA. She is near the front and is very clearly marked. In 1999, the new owners of Hollywood Forever offered to rebury or relocate Hattie. Her family said, thanks but no thanks, we'll just keep her where she is. So they have a very lovely marker in remembrance of her at Hollywood Forever. At the end of her career, the black press was extremely critical of her. But Spike Lee reflected on black cinema pioneers and said, they were great talents and they were doing the best with what was being offered them at the time. Monique wore a blue dress and gardenias in her hair, just like Hattie did when she won her own Oscar in 2011, and even thanked Hattie in her acceptance speech, saying, for enduring all that she had to so that I would not have to. There is an unsolved mystery around Hattie. When she passed, she gave her Oscar to Howard University to inspire other Black actors in their drama department. Well, they can't find it. Actually, they first said they never had it. Then they asked the Academy for a replacement. What? Was it lost? Stolen? Misplaced? the world may never know. What we do know is if Hattie should come to our party. I know we don't necessarily need more singers, but she could sing. She threw amazing salons, so a touch of sophistication wouldn't kill us. And she was funny as hell. So yeah, our birthday girl is in. Next week, we'll be getting to know a real beefcake. So make sure to come back and get a slab of that. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Anchor or whatever you use to listen. See you next week. Stop that noisy girl.